This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I'm Dave Vanderveen. This is season one. We're in episode 25. And today we have the one, the only, the Richie Schley. That is, a, that is a Schley. That's a Schley sound. He's from Canada. He is a professional mountain biker, uh, ex-pro uh, border cross skier. No? Free skier. Free skier. Yeah. Okay. Um, free skier. Ex-pro free skier. And uh, anyways, we've got Richie here today. We've worked together for a while now. He lives part-time in Laguna Beach. Well, actually, probably full-time in Laguna Beach. Is that right? Yeah, now. And and uh, used to live part-time up north, up in Whistler or Kamloops country. Yeah, British Columbia. So, um, Richie, tell us a little bit about you. And uh, how did when did we first meet? When was the first time that we actually connected uh, here in Laguna? I think it was here in Laguna we first met, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if it was... Um I think we may have met randomly in the streets of Laguna Beach at some point, but uh, I think uh, due to my friendship with Andrew Herrick, I got invited to your Christmas party. Right. Back when he was uh, at Crank Brothers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I I remember coming into the Christmas party and, uh, you know, the the Van de Veens sounded very uh, (laughs) Was it at our house? Was it here at Vandevala? Yeah, it was here at this place. It was very stately, and you had uh, your Christmas uh, red plaid pants on, and Uh, I uh, actually uh, thought I was in a movie from a college frat uh, ex, you know, successful stately uh, lawyer or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're making me feel pretty... um, I'm going to adjust your gain a little bit. I think I turned it up too much. There we go. Um, no, it's it's funny. I, I know we've known each other for a while, so it's probably been about almost a decade. I, I would think that's about right. Eight to ten years, something yep, like that. For sure. When did you hurt your leg when you were on crutches and I was oh, giving I, you a hard time at the bird? Yeah, I think that was, I tore my Achilles tendon skiing. That, that must be like five years ago now. Five years ago. Okay. Yeah. By then we knew each other reasonably well because yeah. I was comfortable enough to um, harass me, like to you, harass you and get uh, Ron I to, you know. <laughs> From World Anthem Band to shout out uh, <laughs> that the cripple was in the bar. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, but uh, no, you, we've been friends for a while, and it's it's good to have you on the podcast. You know, um, the Kick Aspirational podcast is is basically about um, breaking through barriers in your life and uh, kind of answering these stories. People have asked me a lot over the years, how do you make excess or how do you create excess as a brand? And I think what they're really asking is, how can I create a life that I want? I don't think right. you know the mechanics of how we created excess are really that exciting. We'll get it. I've gotten into that in different podcasts. But what I love to do is have people on to talk about how you've broken through barriers in your own life, what you, how you've created some new, new things. And you really created a movement with, um, free, free ride mountain biking. Is that right? I mean, you're one of the early, are you the founder of it? The co-creator? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would softly softly claim that. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Softly claim. Otherwise you get heckled for claiming. Exactly. But I think it's been said in, in films and other, 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 um, I've certainly been, you've been called out as, as yeah. one of the founders or the founder. So I think that's safe to say. I'll, I'll claim it for you. Okay, you cool. can just nod and agree. <laughs> um, and you're from, you're from Canada. You're from British Columbia. Yeah. I was born in Vancouver and uh, grew up in some very uh, blue collar, small towns, Vernon, British Columbia and Kamloops, British Columbia. And then uh, when I got out of high school, I was a little bit at a loss for what I was going to do with my life because I watched my older friends go to college and, you know, kind of try this, try that. And I'm like, well, I could go make money and do the things I want to do, or I could go to college and just be lost there for a few years. So I kind of packed up and moved to Whistler and 
then it all the 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 real fun story started, I guess. So Whistler, that's the I mean that's the ski resort in the in the British uh, Rockies. Is that are those the Rockies? Uh, it's in it's just north of Vancouver, British Columbia, in yeah. the Coast Mountains. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I like going there. I wasn't sure what mountain range I was in, but uh, we've yeah. like a little condo up there. I love it up there. What um, what what did you do when you moved to Whistler? How did how did that happen? Or what what did what what brought you to Whistler? Well, I had a. a kind of an acquaintance, my sister's, uh, my sister's best friend's little brother. And he kind of, you know, I, I, when I was younger in Kamloops, I raced BMX and eventually ended up becoming the Canadian BMX champion in, in pro pro class. So, or in 1993, but previous to that, you know, a small blue collar town, it was a lot of, uh, what year did you graduate from high school? Uh, 88. 88. Yeah. So you're one year younger than me. Yeah. Although you look quite a bit older. This is strange. <laughs> is this a podcast? I want, I want to show that that's not true. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, We're you, not talking you, about Hans Ray, are you, we? You actually, you actually look younger. <laughs> quite a so, bit younger. Yeah. yeah so I, I, um, yeah, I, I was at a loss for what to do. And uh, this guy knew me because I, you know, as a teenager in a town like that, BMX, you're in the newspaper all the time. Like there was a lot of, in those sports, uh, there's a lot of races and it's alternative. So it's something to talk about. It's a little, you know, they talk about the football teams and the rugby teams, but the BMX thing was pretty popular. Well, the so. images are fun too, right? Yeah, exactly. You guys are getting airs. And, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So and you, and you were tra- racing on a track? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't a freestyle. There wasn't a lot of uh, freestyle was starting then, but then it was more racing. And so this guy kind of knew me, and and uh, I saw him at the beach. The beach being the river, Kamloops, <laughs> <laughs> not the beach like in California. <laughs> the beach in Vancouver uh, no, or in Kamloops yeah, is a little yeah, different yeah, than the, the there's beach. No ocean. There's no salt. It's yeah, just yeah. Uh, you know a river. <laughs> so uh, and he said you should move to Whistler, and I went, oh, well, why is that? And he's like, well, it's pretty awesome there. Good place for a young guy just out of high school and whatever. Okay, and I'd seen some ski movies like the Warren Miller movies sure. and stuff. And I thought, and I had seen Whistler in these uh, ski movies, uh, and I was like, "Oh man, this." Had you skied there before? I had never been there. Oh wow! But you only lived like what an hour and a half away? No, it's four hours away. From Kamloops, it's four hours. Yeah. Okay. You go to drive over this mountain range that's called the Duffy Lake Road, and how far are you from Vancouver? Four hours, but in a different direction. Like it's a triangle that okay. linked the two. But it's there's really nothing in between. There's a couple small, uh, small native towns that are. You know, a few hundred people. Okay. So it's quite a, a nice gap of driving through nature and the whole wilderness thing to get there. No matter which way you go, it's tons of open space and a lot of moose. beautiful mountains and uh, a little bit of moose. It's a little... In Kamloops, there's moose, but getting close to the coast, it's le- there's less moose because it's too rugged, right? They like they like flatlands. Sure. So, so when you were... So 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 did you end up? How did you end up? Did you you had a friend in Whistler, or where, where did you? No, it was end up a friend in, in Kamloops that was back for the summer. Okay, and he was uh, living in Whistler. Okay, and so he encouraged me to come check it out. So I went in the summer, and I went summer skiing. I'd never been summer skiing. On the horrible. on the glacier. On the glacier, yeah, it was yeah. horrible. Yeah. There's little lanes, and I'm, you know, I stopped BMX racing because I like adventure. And the BMX racing, you go to a track, and there's not much adventure. You're in one location, right? Right. So I went there and I summer skied, and it was. It was whatever. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. So I moved to Whistler knowing him and his girlfriend, and that was it. Wow. Which was a very, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. You you're, uh, grow up and, you know, the teen years in someone's life are tough. You got to, it's, it's a tough fight to be popular and to have friends and everything, right? And uh, I moved to Whistler and I was, 
I knew these two people that were in a relationship and I was trying to go out and find my way. And it's pretty strange to not know anybody and to have to build your popularity and, you know, kind of find your place. Who are you, right? You're a young man. And, and uh, so it was a couple of years of, uh, of, of learning yourself, learning a new town, finding friends. And, and what were you doing for work up there? How were you making uh, money? Well, I was working in the summer doing, I, I went back and forth. I hated both jobs. I was a construction worker because that's what my dad did. And then some guys from Kamloops were, uh, were working in the bush and they were a bunch of ski bum guys that raced, like did speed skiing and stuff. And they're a bunch of cool guys. And they're like, you seem like a cool guy. You should come work with us. But I hated isolation. So we'd live in tents in the bush and run chainsaws and do mining exploration work. And I absolutely hated it. But I like the guys. I like the nature. But I hated being. I, I like girls a lot. Yeah. No girls. <laughs> I've noticed. Yeah. <laughs> Not afraid of pretty women. Exactly. So. Yeah. So I was kind of made enough money in the summers to kind of carry me over. And then a big thing when you are, when you live in a ski town is the ski pass is a pretty big spend. So I got a part-time job to, to get a free ski pass in a, in a ski shop tuning skis. And, or it was more like rentals, like putting, setting people up in rentals and stuff. So, so one of the shops on Whistler, so you get well, access I'm, to the Whistler. Yeah, exactly. Whistler so pass. you got a ski pass out of the deal. And uh, yeah, so it was kind of like, and then I thought, I want to be a pro skier. So who knows uh, how, how to do that? But I, I started to kind of, you know, the ski hill I grew up at, there were no cliffs. There was like one cliff. So if you jumped off a cliff, it, it was kind of like there was one. That was it. But in Whistler, it's a big mountain with alpine terrain. Right. So there's all kinds of terrain for you to do crazy stuff on, right? And so that was, my eyes were open and <clears throat> that was the first kind of go. I remember one of my first days skiing, I, you know, somebody was like, I'll show you a cool cliff. So I ski down and standing on this like 30 40 foot cliff i'm like oh my god i've never done anything like this before and uh, of course some hardcore locals ski by and they stop and they're like go you pussy come on and and i was like oh man this is actually pretty serious and so you know finally you got to eventually cross these boundaries and try stuff and do crazy stuff that's what all this action sports stuff's about you know Right, so then you, you skied off the 40-foot cliff. Mm -hmm. And that was, was that kind of a big barrier for you? Like that it was, was a like big a barrier, for sure. Breaking through, there was just, and how did you do? Did you, did you land it? Uh, I think I kind of like, you know, in those days you landed on your hip and kind of, they call it a hip check and kind of bounce up and ski away. It's a, it's, a, it's a much heavier skill to be able to stomp it on your feet and ski away. And that's, I learned that later that you have to be clean. All your, all your stuff has to be clean. You know, you got to land clean. You can't kind of half-ass it and then ski away. Because it's easy to hurl yourself off something and land on your side and then pop up in the powder and ski away, right? Yeah. yeah. But people who actually know what they're watching realize that yeah, you, exactly. you kind of yeah. boofed it. And, uh, yeah. yeah. In, was, in a way. It was my first go. <laughs> yeah. I've stopped hooking myself off cliffs. I, yeah. It, uh, it, it didn't end well for me a lot of times, so I, I stopped doing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I'm a little more... Uh, actually, as an athlete, I've always been very choosy. I don't I don't just go for anything. I go for the ones I like, right? Yeah, yeah, you're, so, you're more particular. Yeah. So, and you did become a pro skier of sorts, correct? Yes, for sure. Was it for free skiing or was it yeah. for... You, and you were in the X Games, right? I did a couple X Games, but I, I, my whole... Um, Dry, like after my BMX time, I didn't really like racing and competition. There's too much structure and too much, um, too many rules and too many other influences from other people that are, you know, telling you how to do it, what you have to do. And I, I didn't like those boundaries. So I kind of, the whole free skiing, free ride mountain biking thing was much more appealing to me because you kind of, 
you know, you create your own thing. You do it the way you want to do it. You want to, if you want to be a big jumper or if you want to ski steep stuff or whatever you want to do, it's, it's yours to decide. And if the community thinks it's cool, then I guess you succeed. But I, I like to, I like to kind of go, well, I think this is great. So I'm going to do it and I hope people enjoy it. Right. And, and who's the, I mean, who, who are the people that make the decision? Cause basically you've got two things, right? You've got to attract attention. So you, at that time it was probably photos and magazines. Yeah. For sure. I mean, and videos and, and videos. So, yeah. so video having parts and videos and, and, um, images and magazines, but then, so that's kind of the editors of those kind of decide who's sure. cool. Right. But then how do you make money? Like, where does the money come from? Is it from sponsorships or from uh, photo placement? How does, how does that work? Well, it's, it's kind of a funny how it worked for me is so different than how it works today because today with social media, you can, you know, do so many different things to create it yourself. Right. So uh, when I mean to create income or or what? Sorry, help me understand what what that means. How you can create so many different things? Well, like nowadays, I think to create, you could be not known, live in a place where no one sees you, and you could probably start. um, Oh, excuse me. (laughs) You could start your own social media channel and uh, become kind of a big deal because you did something so crazy that people on the the interweb are really enamored by it, right? Yeah. But in those times, you kind of, it was very television based or like you said, print media based or whatever. So uh, for how it started for me was the local, well, BMX racing was one thing, but then the local, uh, there was a ski show called, I don't know, it was called Ski TV or something. It was like on local cable. <laughs> ski, it was a Canadian show, Ski it TV. Was, no, it was local to Kamloops. Oh, right? wow. So the local cable station. So I kind of got that got the buzz because these guys were like, oh, we hear you're one of the rippers around the hill. You want to come shoot for this thing? And so that's how it all starts. But in in Whistler, when I moved there, of course, there's a scene, right? Yeah. But at that point, the scene was very small. There were like maybe three big guys that were pro guys that were doing this on uh, a free ski level. Like they weren't racing. They were like two guys were very extreme skier guys. They went and skied big mountains and so on and so on. And then... Another guy was uh, skiing in the Warren Miller movies, and he was more like the ski actor. Like, they were very far apart, these two groups of people, right? And did you ski in the Warren, Mil- Warren Miller films? I've been in one Warren Miller film, but the, the movies I was highlighted in were called uh, MSP or Matchstick Productions. Okay. And it was more like the core yeah. one. Like, Warren Miller's a very mainstream, big name. Right. And at that time, there were movies that the, the core watched more, and, and the Matchstick ones were the big, big ones. So Got it. I got the chance to be in, I think, about four of those. But how it started for me was... Um, because of my stature, I'm not the tallest man on the earth. How, how tall are you, Richie? Uh, I say I'm five, six and a half because every half inch at this height makes a difference. <laughs> <laughs> but with the afro, how tall are you? With the afro, could, I could maybe five, seven and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at that time, the, um, there was a big amount of Japanese people tour. Um, Traveling and skiing was huge for them. And so there were a lot of jobs in Whistler for modeling for Japanese ski magazines. Oh, wow. So it was in the newspaper posted, and I would go out, and I guess I look all right, and I fit the clothing. So You fit I, easily into Japanese sizes. I fit great into Japanese sizes. <laughs> so I got a lot of, a lot of cool work uh, that paid all right to do that. And in the meantime, then I started to kind of find out who the top photographers were in the the core scene, right? Yeah. And I kind of would solicit them and say, hey, here's a couple shots of me. I'm pretty, um, 
pretty decent skier. If you need anybody for something, let me know. So I, I really went after it. I think a lot of like a lot of guys' stories might be a little more romantic. They might have got discovered, but I I went for it. I kind of I always say that I didn't wait for my ship to come in. I swam out to it. You know. And so you kind of created in a lot of ways. I mean, when you did it in skiing, and then later you did it for biking. But you created a category that didn't really exist in a way, right? I mean, it was loosely existed, but only for yeah. a couple of people. Well, in skiing, it, it existed. It was more a U.S. based thing, and in Canada, it was uh, just starting. There was only. I would say doing what I was trying to do. There was probably less than five guys that had any success. And um, I don't know, somehow, I guess I came from a hardworking family. You know, my dad was a construction worker. It was like, work hard, work hard, work hard. And even as a kid, when I was about 12 years old, we started kind of BMX in Kamloops. Like it was, there was one race and then my dad being a construction worker had all the machinery. So we kind of got involved and built the first BMX tracks. And then I was like, well, how do we make this? I want to have a team. So I went out as a 12 year old kid and got sponsorships from hotels and, and <laughs> like businesses to, to make us jerseys to have a little team. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I kind of always just kind of figured I got to create this. I'm not going to wait for somebody to come to me. Right. Right. So then with the skiing thing, it just kind of blossomed into more uh, like doing photo shoots and some of them paid like because the guys had to pay you or they got a they got a catalog shoot and you do these catalog shoots. And so building kind of a a thing and then in the background trying to be a radical skier doing my own crazy stuff because that's that was a movement that was happening. You know, when you live in a place that has the terrain for it, you you by nature want to do the craziest stuff because you're guys and you're competitive and you want to do all this stuff right so um then eventually i started to to kind of try to get involved in the movies because if you have a segment in a ski movie then you're you're the real deal that's kind of like they <clears throat> they give you the stamp of approval that you're one of the guys right so did you um and your parents see you graduating high school going off and effectively like, working construction which your father yep. also did but than also kind of becoming a ski bum, right? I mean, you're a professional mm-hmm. skier and you're making some money, but were you making very much money at the beginning? Oh, God, no, no. Yeah. My, how, uh, how long did it take to survive as a, as a skier? Well, I probably moved to Whistler when I was 19 or 20, I think 19. And then, uh, you know, did these summer jobs. And my, my, my father, of course, oh, was hold like... Hold on one we, second. Sorry, Richie. Oh, good oh, sorry. Times. Need a little positive energy here. <laughs> See, <laughs> I might need one of those in a minute too. Yeah, here, I'll give you this one. <laughs> <laughs> I like the root beer. The root yeah, beer the root is the best. good. We're drinking root beer excess, by the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, who drank? Who drinks root beer after they get to a certain age? So the fact that excess has root beer has uh, been such a cool thing for me. Jeez. Yeah, the excess root beer blast. We'll have a quick sip here. Oh, delicious! <sighs> we actually uh, started with margaritas just to loosen the lips a little bit, but. Um, but I'd finished my margarita, so I needed something else. You're still working <laughs> on yours, I see. Currently, uh, you have a... Uh, you're thirstier than I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I didn't mean to... I, I mean, I guess I did mean to interrupt you, but not really. So you're... When did you become a... a like, when did you formally just be... You know, only be doing... When did you switch to only skiing? Skiing. Or only? Well, there was a bit of a... It took, it took time. Like, <clears throat> basically, I was working the summers, and I was just so committed to, to, to doing this that I would start to kind of turn away work because I really wanted to be free. So when the phone rang, I could go, right? And uh, so around 25, which was pretty late, 
I was really frustrated. I was like one of the photographers I worked with a lot. The mountain bike thing had already kind of started because there was there was no free riding in mountain biking. It was right. basically a um, a full on racing sport, and there was a couple guys like Hans Ray were doing something a little different. But for the most part, it was racing, and if you wanted to be part of the sport, you went to races. <clears throat> and it was downhill races. Yeah, uh, downhill and cross country. Downhill okay. had just started. Okay, and um, so. I had seen in skiing, snowboarding, surfing, this, this sole kind of free ride aspect of the sport. And uh, what happened was I, there was a movie maker called Greg Stump who was a really, he made the cool hip movies. It was like party and lifestyle and really brought the whole lifestyle of skiing to life. Yep, right. <clears throat> and, the, and the culture of these ski towns like in, you know, Telluride and Whistler and whatever. So... I was bugging this guy because I knew his girlfriend from Kamloops. She was a, a, a girl that grew up in Kamloops. And he was like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know, because we ended up going to the same drinking establishments and, you know, it's all a small ski town. So Wait, so skiers and mountain bikers both both like to party? Yeah, apparently a lot of people like to party. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, so I was on a, a Japanese photo shoot with uh, the girl, Ace was her name. And uh, she said, hey, uh, can you do a 360 on a mountain bike? And I said, yeah. And so she said, well, I know you've been bugging Greg to get into ski movies, but we might have a gig for you this summer for, uh, for mountain biking. Oh, wow. And, and it was like a promotional video. So a 360 is like in the air. You yeah, just, you off do a jump. It, yeah, like a helicopter kind of thing. And, and um, so most of my fans probably don't know I could do a 360, but there was a time because I haven't done one for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and did you some of you had learned on, on BMX bikes? On BMX bikes, yeah, and skis and whatever, yeah. So, uh, so lo and behold, the phone rang that summer, and it was like, oh, we're going to do this, uh, we're going to do this promotional video <clears throat> for specialized bikes. So we pack up the car and go to Kamloops, my hometown, and. Uh, the terrain there is really conducive to this kind of stuff. It's like there, it's grassland, so you can kind of ride anywhere, and there's clay uh, outcroppings of cliffs everywhere. So you can you can be pretty creative, like on skis or a snowboard. You can just kind of drop in anywhere and get kind of crazy with it, do whatever you want. And I think the mountain bike world hadn't seen too much of this. Okay. So... I had done a little bit of this stuff because when we were kids, you grew up there and I, you take your BMX bike and my dad would drive us to the top of the mountain and we'd ride down and drop off the side of the trail and do all kinds of crazy stuff. We just, my friends and I were very adventurous. We weren't like confined to the trail. We wanted to explore, right? So uh, the camera guys turned on their cameras and we're, we were going, we're going to ride down that and we're going to do this. And they were like, seriously? And so it kind of just turned into this it was like ridiculous it was a bunch of the local like once the word got out all the locals were coming out going hey can we take the bike and give it a go and oh, people awesome. crashing everywhere and it was a it was who are you riding for back then or which bikes no, were you on okay. it was a specialized promotional video okay so then this ski movie guy sees the footage this greg stump guy and he's like this is amazing i mean i'm making this boring mountain bike video where there's cross-country racers and they're riding down the trail and they're racing and these guys are wiping out and jumping off cliffs and doing yeah. jumps and 360s and crazy stuff i did a 360 for the, for the movie. 
Did and you land on your hip or did you land? No, I, la- I crashed actually oh, and smoked <laughs> my head on the ground. Oh no! And the bummer was that sh- the shot where I stuck it well, was just, out of just focus. Just for the for the listeners, when you say you smoked your head on the ground, this is can you put that into American? <laughs> I, I crashed and hit my head on the ground. <laughs> Sorry, we're talking in uh, action sports lingo. No, it's here. great. It's great. So you. Go ahead. So, so, and yeah, so, so my shot was the opener of the video of me crashing, but I didn't land it because the cameraman, bugger, he uh, didn't focus, get that one in focus. So, my buddy that also did 360s, his were all in focus, right? Oh, man. But whatever. So the, the amount bike industry saw this and it didn't get received very well. They were like, who are these guys? Like no one knows them and they're... It didn't fit their contextual yeah, map for what mountain exactly. biking was, right? They're crashing yeah. a lot and... So, it, but, but didn't they realize they'd sell a lot more bikes if people crash more often? Well, I think they saw something different. So then the, this magazine here in California called Bike Magazine, uh, one of the guys <clears throat> that was on the shoot was a photographer for, for them. And he went back and sent these pictures and said, you got to see this. And the journalist at the time, same thing, saw the, saw the images and was like, this is crazy. There's something going on here. We got to, we got to check this out closer. Yeah. So they sent a crew, like a photographer and a journalist out and they wrote a story about these, myself and Brett Tippy and this other guy, Craig Olson, that kind of faded off into the backdrop. And, uh, it, it came out in the magazine. It was like, like we were, you know, we're like young kids almost. And we're just like, Oh my God, what's it going to be like? And this cover comes out and there's a picture of me on the cover and it says BC's Sick riders do it steeper, faster, and gnarlier than anyone on the planet. Whoa. And we're like, those are some pretty heavy shoes we got to fill. Yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah. a World Cup racers and all these guys doing the sport at a very high level. So it kind of, that, that kind of broke the seal because the video was too much for people that didn't get it. So we, uh, the guys that made the first video made a movie. And then it started to look like skiing and snowboarding where there was actually a movie and each rider had their part and our names were attached to it and so on and so forth. And then the thing just literally took off like a freight train. Like it was a, it was a part of mountain biking that was missing like lifestyle and you could be a, you could be part of a cool scene without having to go to the race and be the best. You could just go with your buddies and hit a jump or do whatever you wanted to do. It didn't have to be competition. Exactly. And so it really kind of, open people's eyes because a lot of you know a lot of mountain bike people might not have been exposed to surfing skiing or snowboarding to know that this soul rider thing exists right right and uh so that it it was a pretty cool time and and because of my exposure to the ski world i was like there's an opportunity so right i went for it and i chased sponsors and tried to so i i feel like in free ride mountain biking i kind of formed being sponsored because right. my buddies weren't as aggressive as me. They weren't as, um, they were a little more modest. You know, Canadians were not so like, go for it. And I was like, no, I'm going to go get these people and tell them that they got to pay us like they pay the racers because we're going to influence the sale of products, right? Sure. And some people believed it and some people didn't. And it was harder to measure, right? How yeah. do you measure? Incredibly soul? hard. To, yeah. yeah. Versus, versus you can measure a competition. Do you win or lose, for sure. right? Yeah. For second or third. Did, um, I mean, for, for, for us, for excess, we've always believed that at least, you know, my opinion's always been that the competition sponsorship isn't as valuable for what we like to do. Um, because I like to, I, I think the lifestyle component is the real value, particularly yeah. for a brand, for a lifestyle brand. Um, I get that some brands really like competition and that's great. Um, but for me, like just the, the pure love of the sport 
getting outside, breathing the air and, you know, kind of immersing yourself in adventure is much more interesting from a brand perspective than, than the, than the competition, which is in my opinion, a little too analog sometimes, you know, it's great. There's people who are really good at it and, and, you know, congratulations to them. But for what we were trying to do, it just seemed like it wasn't quite as good of a fit. Um, so you started out with sponsors for your BMX team who were hotels and things like that. <laughs> what kind of sponsors have you had, you know, once you, once you became, you know, obviously a, a well-known pro free, free ride mountain bike, what kind of, what kind of sponsors have you had or how, how did that business kind of evolve or develop? Well, it seems like the anchor is always the bike. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because the bike is filled with so many other components. Sure. So, so like we knew Andrew Herrick, who was one of the Crank co-founders Brothers. of, of yeah. Crank Brothers, which made pedals and yeah. wheels and all kinds of different components, components but they don't yeah. make bikes exactly. or they didn't make bikes at the time. Yeah. It's very unique in mountain biking where, um, you know, the, there's the bike, but the bike company buys the parts to build the bike. So you know, and a lot of it, comp- uh, and there are exceptions like Specialized makes all their own parts. But in this business, it's um, it's very like the bike is chop suey. It's made up of a whole bunch of different stuff, and, right? And so, people want to customize them for their own needs, exactly. right? Exactly. And so typically <clears throat> in those days, a racer would be sponsored by a team and they would um, just ride for that team and they get one paycheck and <clears throat> the, the brand has all the parts and that's their team. And because of skiing and how you had uh, a ski sponsor, a clothing sponsor, a goggle sponsor. So I immediately was like, I'm going to break this apart and I'm going to get sponsored by each company. You get a lot of different sponsors. Yeah. And so that, more, more checks. And that was, yeah, more checks. Exactly. And, and actually, <clears throat> it, it was kind of a discount for the companies because they would go, okay, we're going to sponsor a racer. And it's going to cost us the, the salary of the racer. We have to have a mechanic. We have to have a truck and trailer and all their travel expenses and everything. And I kind of came to them with like, just give me this sum of money and I'll do everything. Right. I'll just get in the magazines. I'll have other sponsors. They'll advertise with me. So you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff. So at that time, it was Rocky Mountain Bicycles that sponsored us. And they were a smaller brand. So they couldn't afford the big you know, World Cup teams that cost a lot of money. And I think they were like, this is so cool. We pay these guys a bit of money and we don't even have to really manage them. They'll go do their own thing. Right. So it was kind of a, a marketing um, like delight for them because they didn't have to really, they, they did some things with us, but we did it ourselves, right? We became kind of media making machines. And at the time, the thing was so new and sexy that they loved it. So the, the magazines loved it. The TV started to like it. And it's, it just kind of worked because it was a little break away from the norm. Yeah. So, so were, were your sponsors that, at that point kind of measuring impressions? Were they looking at, like you, you send out every year, one of the things you do is you send out a book yeah. that has all the impressions that you, that you created that year, correct? For sure. So like the different magazines you've been in, the movies you've been in, who it reached, all those kinds of things. Um, is that kind of where the value, how you, is that one of the ways that you establish the value that, that yeah, the brand sure. would look for? Yeah, and I think that that's something that, I mean, other like other writers like Hans Ray were doing it as well and stuff. But, right. But I, I think Hans that, Ray, by the way, we should just probably mention him a couple of times. So he, he was a trials rider from, yeah. was he from Switzerland? 
Yeah, he's from Switzerland. Austria, Switzerland, something like that. Germany. And he kind came. Of he came to the U.S. and was, and made a big splash. Like he was this. Uh, he, he did things. He was the best there was. So he was on a BMX bike originally, right? He was originally. Yeah. And trials is basically it's like hopping on stuff and climbing. Yeah. Into, it's almost like being a mountain goat in a way, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and then he started doing that on a BM. On a, I'm sorry, on a mountain bike. Yeah. He started on a BMX and started mo- shifted into. I like the BMX footage when he's in the 80s because yeah, Hans yeah, Ray yeah. had. Some amazing Euro Euro styling oh, happening. For sure, for sure. Yeah, the, the look <laughs> and everything. But he he came to California and he had great success because he was so skilled, and it was bicycles and whatever. And so I think that um, <laughs> he's oh, calling Hans me right now. Actually, calling you right now. That is hilarious. Hold on, hold that up. I'm gonna get a photo of that. This is amazing. <laughs> this is so perfect. So perfect. Hold on, hold on. Let me get this. His ears are just smoking right now. Oh, my gosh. Hans is a good friend of ours. Um, he's done these crazy adventures all over the world. He's written yeah. up uh, Mount Ararat. He's gone I've looking for about, aliens. I've done three of them with him, actually. Have you really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he's a great guy who also happens to live in Laguna. Yeah, for and sure. you well, that's, guys, why, that's why I ended up in Laguna. Because of Hans. Yeah, for sure. And, and are you guys... And are you, are you guys all part of the rads, the Laguna Beach uh, rads? I'm not a rad, but I do ride with them, yeah. But you feel rad when you ride with them? Uh, I feel more rad, really. <laughs> <laughs> the rads are a local mountain bike, a kind of extreme mountain bike group. It's, it's really just kind of underground, right? It's not yeah. really like a, I mean, yeah. it's kind of a semi-formal well, they, thing. They claim they're the oldest mountain bike club in, in America, which is probably true, right? Which would be the oldest in the world, right? It probably would, actually, yeah. Cause Cause, didn't mountain biking get kind of created in Northern California, like yeah. in Marin County? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but back to your um, the thing about the media is that so I think they they don't ask what we're doing, but you know if you're not the world champion, how do you show your value? So we started to say, okay, I'm going to show you. I got ten covers of a magazine last year. I was in, featured in fifteen magazines. I was in this movie and I was on this TV show. And so then they start to look at it and go, hmm, we sponsor this racer that's you know tenth in the world, and they didn't get any of this coverage. So they start right. to kind of. So I think we also drove that um, that train. Kind of was like, okay, look, like quantify what you're getting out of it, right? Right. So, so yeah, because I think that's a really good question. I mean, you know, you think about racing. This is how I think about it: is you know, how many people actually watch a race, or think about a race, or care about a race, um, versus how many people are reading this magazine, or watching this movie, or yeah. watching this TV show, and when um, and those impressions are what ultimately matter, right? I yeah. mean, when. In, in, there's, there's internal communi- you know, there's internal kind of thought about, let's say, mountain biking, surfing, whatever, pick your action sport, who's the best and why. But one of the things I remember years ago when Randy Hild was running Roxy for Quicksilver, you know, this women's surf brand, early women's, I think first women's surf brand, um, he told me at one point, he goes, yeah, you know, we're thinking about maybe even discontinuing competitive sponsorships. Um, I don't think they did, but he just said, you know, it's really hard for us to measure who's watching this, who cares, and how this, how this relates to any, any increased sales or connection to the brand. Right. Because really, for them especially, I mean, they were selling to women who just love the idea of being outside in a swimsuit, on the beach, in the water, potentially surfing, maybe, right. maybe aspiring to surfing even more than watching it. And competitive surfing, which was created by guys, you know, really kind of in the 70s, you know, the Ian Cairns era, right. um, it was more of a macho, you know, who's best... Yep. Which women a lot of times don't ask. You know, a lot of times women, even though competitive True. female surfers, a lot of times are, are are just enjoying traveling together and competing, not really for, for first, second, or third place, but just to be in the water together and and see who gets you know more points. For sure. Um, so it's just kind of a different a different approach. But um, 
So, so you are actually putting together some. So you you were quantifying, putting metrics together, so a brand could evaluate. Sure. You know what are we actually getting? Who's actually seeing this? And by the way, are we reaching the people that buy bikes or buy components or buy gear that we want to sell? Right. Oh, for sure. And actually, um, on the way over here, my, my buddy Wade Simmons, who there's three of us that are kind of a, or a, um, what do you call it? We're we're the guys that apparently created freeride mountain biking. And so it's Brett Tippy and Wade Simmons and I, and we're in the mountain bike hall of fame together for this reason. So why do you think they're not as good as you? <laughs> we'll get to that. In a <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I was talking to Wade Simmons on the way over here and, uh, and we were saying, wow, we're, you know, we're, we're 25 years into this and in all the sports like skiing, snowboarding, surfing, whatever. And probably the competitors are still the ones making the most money. But when you really, I wonder if anyone's broken down the metrics to say who sells the most product. Cause, right. cause we, we did the analogy of ski racing. Like let's say you're watching the world cup downhill. Is that why you're going to go buy a pair of goggles and no one's going to buy a speed suit. So then the well, no one's going to buy their, any of the equipment they're using. Well, right. So it, it's sort of like, it's interesting in this age of marketing that that's still, but I guess it's Formula One. Like that's what everybody, that's the pinnacle. So, but it, for us as free, and maybe historically, it did get the most. When, when ABC Adventure Sports yeah, World or something course. was, you know, what everybody was yeah. watching, that's the only time you saw ski brands. And if you saw, yeah, you know, the Mayer point. Brothers on K twos, then <clears throat> exactly. you're going to go buy K twos because maybe you could ski like the Mayers yeah, if you had exactly. those. Although there's no way you'd be even skiing on remotely the same skis as the Mayer of Brothers. Course. But it's funny that you said that about why are you better than the other guys? Like, that's what's so interesting about this, the industries that we are, we're in. Like, you know, you're a free rider. There is, there, I mean, now there's contests. So you can say this guy's the best, that guy's the best, whatever. Are they the best? I don't know. Are they the best at their job? Whatever. But I was sponsored by Fox Clothing, like the Fox head for a while. And in the beginning, I'm, I made the contact. I made everything. And the guys at Fox were so clever that they, uh, they, I had the meeting, but those other dudes, Tippy and Simmons, were in the car with me, and he's like, I want to have a meeting with them, too. And I'm like, well, that's not fair. I made the whole connection, right? So we go in and have the meeting, and the questions were very race-oriented, but they didn't understand the whole free ride thing, so the guy was like, who's the best? <laughs> and I'm like, that goes against everything that free riding's about, but I know the answer to this, so I go, I am. <laughs> and he's like, Why? And I, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so then he goes, okay, you're the one that gets the deal. And, and we're all modest Canadians, so probably we didn't want to say who's the best, but who is the best? You can't really say because we're free ride guys. Yeah. I, I'm better at this. This guy's better at that. This guy's better at that, right? Right. But it's, so, it's such a, a competition-based world that right. I just had to give the right answer, which is kind of ridiculous, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I remember, I mean, like, I remember growing up and you'd, you'd um, I used to read Surfer Magazine and maybe like Powder Magazine. Yep. Um, and I read those because I didn't really, I mean, ski racing was mildly interesting, but it was, you know, or surfing competition was mildly interesting, but really I wanted to see some cool new place somebody was going and like a maneuver yeah. you hadn't seen before, which no one's ever going to do in a competition because in a competition you're going to do something that typically you can repeat and you've practiced. And, you know, I mean, maybe you'll, somebody will see break out some new move that you haven't right. seen in a competition. But really you're watching the videos and reading the magazines sure. to see what might come into competition in the future, right? Yeah, it's true. Um, like remember when uh, when mogul skiing was in the uh, right. Olympics and, and you weren't allowed to do inversions, 
And then the year that Johnny Mosley won, he did some free ski trick yeah. that wasn't even on their uh, radar, t- right. and he won the Olympics. And it was, so your your point is exactly right that the the culture influenced the competitive, um, you know, the criteria. Well, especially when style is part yeah. of what you're what, exactly. what you're voting on, right? I mean, yeah, in, sure. in downhill skiing, it's just time. I mean, hitting your gates in time. But when it's mogul skiing, which is more of a gymnastics yeah. type program, style is a big component and maneuver, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So, um, so you were free skier, and you were. In, t- tell me about the X Games. You were in the X Games briefly, is that right? <laughs> that was funny. Like, you know, the X Games has way too many, or had in the past, way too many summer events and not enough winter events. And mountain biking was kind of like it's an outdoor adventure sport. Like people in those days equated it to hiking or like mountain biking, hiking, whatever. So it really, it really didn't make the cut to be cool enough for summer. It was in the summer X Games for a hot second, and then it kind of fizzled. So the only way to be back in the X Games was they had snow biking, which was kind of ridiculous because <laughs> it's a summer sport, right? So I got invited to do skier cross and biker cross one year. And it was when Sean Palmer was the, the star of the X Games. And um, it was crazy because the, the skier cross was the first one ever. Well, first, there was there was a skier cross before, but it was... And they tried to do it ridiculous. Like, they let the powder pile up on a mogul field and then had eight guys go at once. So if you're not first, you're getting smoked with, with fresh just snow just and there's a cloud. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody ended up in the hospital. But it was pretty cool because it was like downhill <laughs> ski racers, mogul skiers, free skiers. There was it was everybody, right? Yeah. So guys like Edgar Groperon are doing a backflip halfway down the course, Rob Boyd's like charging into the turns and and then I I ended up taking a ski in the hand and cut my hand open. I'm laying in the hospital and all these dudes are in the hospital too because everybody got hurt. It was crazy because <laughs> it was nobody knew what the, oh, what the was point a, was. You're just again, trying to get pioneering down something, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It was totally new. And then they had snow biking, and so I did that one year, and <clears throat> I didn't have great success. And then the next year, I went, uh, and it was just snow biking. And uh, you know, I was riding for this little Canadian company, and our equipment was not. I was there with all the best World Cup men, downhill uh, mountain bike men. And they all had the state-of-the-art bikes, and I'm on this kind of like couple-year-old technology, and everything's a scene, so they wouldn't even talk to me. I'm friends with most of them now, but at that time, they were like, who's this idiot? We don't know who he is. So I only hung out with the girls because they would talk to me. (laughs) Well, I knew knew how to talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I did a couple X Games, but yeah, at that point, after BMX, I kind of didn't want to compete much. And I did some free ride mountain bike contests because... I, I kind of created them. Like Slopestyle came into mountain biking. It was my kind of baby. I, I brought it to Whistler and tried to show them how to do it and what to do. And so I had to do a few, but it, it was never my my love because yeah, it just it, just is a different spirit, right? Yeah. So these days, you've you've been placed like you were, you were just what was the Red Bull. Um, I can mention Red Bull. I like Red Bull. I think it's a great company. <laughs> I used to own Red Bull distributorship, so I'm, I've, I've always done said... done a lot we, for action sports. Yeah, I've always said, look, you know, I don't want to compete with them. They do a very specific thing. We're going to do something else. We want to bring a different category of consumer yeah. and reach them in a different way. So I'm, I don't mind talking about them. Um, you were just at the... In rampage. The, the, at the Rampage in yeah. Moab, where people are literally riding down cliff faces on bikes. Crazy. <laughs> And you were in a movie that was shot out there a few years ago, right? Or yeah, you were featured well, in it? basically the Rebel Rampage is a, a direct, um, 
it's a direct derivative of what we started, right? Okay. So, but it, it's a way better, like it's in Springdale, Utah, and it's a way better template for what we started with. Like we would jump off one cliff and ride to the bottom or whatever. Right. And this place, you know, the terrain is indicative to make the craziest stuff. And they, you and they build of. some big ramps yeah. and there's just exactly. crushing these. I mean, there's yeah. big gaps that they're doing flips over that oh, if yeah. you miss, you could die. I mean, for fortunately sure. this year, nobody went no, the last two injuries. years, no one's been seriously hurt, but there has been some serious injuries there. No one's died, but there's been some, you know, pretty uh, heavy things, paraplegic yeah. and uh, some pretty heavy stuff. So, but yeah, I did the first five and that was the, that was, you know, our society, you got to make everything into a contest because there has to be the, the right. best. Right? right. So, uh, so now I'm, I'm part of it. Uh, so my friends at Red Bull always find a way to include me and bring me out there. That's and, great. And this year, Maverick gas stations, which is a chain in Utah, um, they sponsored the best trick. So collectively we got together and I, uh, worked with their mascot to find who did the best trick, you know, (laughs) and this guy backflipped off like a, I don't know, 50 or 60 foot cliff on a bike. I mean, who thought you would jump off a 50 or 60 foot cliff? Look what we started. Right. Right. But, uh, backflipping. Do a backflip and land it. Crazy. So. And then you're not landing in snow at that point. No, it's it's a really impressive event. Like if you've never seen it, Google it, watch it. It's, what, it's what was the movie wild. that we watched over at uh, Scott Campanelli's house a few years ago? It was one of the first films shot on a red camera for mountain bike that you oh. were. They talked about you as like one of the original um, free riders. And I thought it was all shot there. It was all sh- it was yeah. Sh- a lot. A lot of it. I'm, oh, it could have been called the Red Red Bull Retrospective or something. But there's could there's be, a, yeah. there's so many films out there. Um, the most recent one that is doesn't go as far as the rampage, but it talks about the early years of how this all started. It's called the Moment Movie. You can yeah. buy it on iTunes. Yeah, and it talk like everything we've been talking about how this whole thing started in Kamloops, British Columbia, and North Vancouver. And there's like three different little areas right. where the whole thing came together and exploded. Um, is is kind of the the movie of that, but there's um, there's a lot of different projects out there that have highlighted all this crazy riding but the one that's the start is the red bull or the one that you might be talking about is the red bull retrospective maybe it talks about the history of it yeah Yeah, it had some of the history of it and then it was a lot of the was kind of bringing into the future of what was happening Mm -hmm. out in in moab and in this part of utah yeah for sure Um, it's funny that you mentioned powder magazine because you know when i when i first moved to whistler i was a young guy my my whole goal in life was I want to be on the cover of Powder Magazine. Yeah. That was like the Surfer Magazine for skiers. Exactly. Yeah. And, if, if, and this is the most ironic uh, thing in my whole career is that I've been on the cover of many ski magazines, uh, Outside Magazine, uh, most mountain bike magazines. Never had the cover of Powder Magazine. Never had the Magazine. Powder cover. Come on, Powder. Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're owned by the same company that owns, they are, that owns Surfer. They are, yeah. yeah. Um, it's my nemesis. It, yeah. It's really, <laughs> we'll have to... Chris Morrow was on this recently. He and I both started at Surfer writing people who surf columns. Oh, uh, cool. He stayed there and became the editor. I, oh, I, awesome. I, I, didn't, I just wrote a few columns and then did other things. But uh, we'll have to see if Chris has a connection at Powder, see if we can figure out how to get on the cover of Powder magazine. Yeah, for sure. It's an epic one. I mean, that's kind of this, the ski lifestyle magazine, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So so what is a what is a day, a week, a month, a year look like for Richie Schlein? I mean, you, I know you, you travel um, similar to me. You travel no, all over the world. No one travels like you do. <laughs> <laughs> I travel. You are a whole nother level. <laughs> but you travel a lot. You're in Europe quite a bit. Yep. Um, you've done some rides with some of our distributors, some of the people yeah. we work with, our partners. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so you're, I know you're in Europe a lot. You travel around the United States. Um, tell me about what does is, what is, what is the Richie Schley uh, program look like today? Well, it kind of depends on the time of year, but uh, typically in the off-season, uh, I get up in the morning and I'm on my computer for, from two to four hours a day, which probably most of my sponsors don't believe, but that's true. Uh, you know, planning trips, uh, negotiating deals, trying to find new venues and ways to get exposure and stuff like that. It's it's a lot of uh, uh, probably like you uh, connection, connecting and trying to networking. brainstorm yeah. crazy ideas, networking, and and then uh, obviously I exercise a lot, so I ride my bike probably five times a week. Um, now I'm a stand-up paddle surfer. Sorry, not as cool as surfing, but I love it. <laughs> and uh, it's a good, great workout, so that, that keeps me fit and kind of balances the body out a little bit because right. being hunched over on skis and a bike your whole life is creates some problems when you're older. It gives you upper body and <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, little more, a little different core strength. For yeah. sure. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it's all, uh, and then in the season, there's a lot of mountain bike festivals and events like that. And a big part of my job is helping these brands develop products, come up with ideas for products and stuff like that. Um, I still ski a bit, but I'm kind of a snob, so I only ski powder. So I try to go cat skiing and heli skiing and a few resort days, but I really can't stand the scene and the <clears throat> you know rigmarole of a resort. So I like to go to these more exclusive powder spots where I can pick my line and no one's going to come into my peripheral vision whatsoever you know that's amazing um and yeah then the the kind of crown jewel uh for what i do is we try to do these adventures like like i mentioned with hans we're the first ones to ride our bikes to the peak of mount kenya and i think we're among the first to do the annapurna circuit in uh nepal and we did a big adventure in uh in india called the rupkund region there's like all these uh it was a, there's a historical story where these people, this uh, village was, a village or a tribe of people were all killed by a storm. And we rode up to this lake and there's literally the remains of like skulls and bones everywhere. It's kind of trippy. So, Oh, wow. So this, this is the actual people who were wiped out by the storm? Yeah, exactly. Wow. So and, I, and was it remote? Was it hard to get to? Yeah. yeah. That, like all, all three of those trips I just mentioned were above 15,000 feet. So wow. on a bicycle, that's a pretty big deal. It's not like skiing. Of course, you don't go to 20,000 feet to Everest or whatever. But, uh, so but I, the, that, the air is pretty thin up there. Yeah. And, and so I like that aspect of the sport and the outdoors. So, I mean, a couple of years ago with another local guy, Brian Lopes, we, did, uh, we rode across the Baja in one day. Oh, wow. Which was a, the hardest mountain bike ride I've ever done. Super hot. Yeah, it was. It was pretty hot, and it was. Uh, it was eleven and eleven hours on the bike, and Whoa. like literally half an hour stop. 20, Twenty-five minute stop was the longest break, and so, so I, I like to. Um, How many miles is that? It was eighty-five miles and fifty-five hundred feet of climbing. Oh so, wow! Yeah. So it was a hard one. But, uh, yeah, so the, for me, the ultimate is to try to plan these trips and see the world through the bicycle, right? Because like, those first trips I mentioned, they're all trekking routes, and it's too slow for me. I want to I move through the mountains quickly. So uh, to do it on a bicycle is much cooler, and so I'm, I'm always trying to find stuff. And th there's a lot of people doing it now, like... Um, People have followed and come up with new ideas on their own or, or replicated the ideas or whatever. So it's, it's hard to find things that haven't been done, but I have my own checklist. Like, you know, I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to ride in Siberia and uh, Iceland. And actually the latest one I've been kind of thinking of is, <clears throat> is the 
East Coast of Canada doesn't get a lot of hype or play, but Newfoundland and New Brunswick and stuff, it's supposed to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. So we, You know, we talked about with, um, have you, you met Tony and Francis Papalardo, friends of ours from New York? I'm not sure. They went with us to Sumba. They've been out here a few times. You may have met them. You and Tony are about the same height. Um, <laughs> oh, now I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joking. But, uh, but no, but um, we were just talking about there's a really cool play out. Uh, it's on Broadway, and I, I'm trying to remember what it's called right now. I can't quite recall it, but it's about this, you know, during 9-11, planes landed in Newfoundland um, at this little airport because right. they were up in there and they had to come I down quickly. That. And uh, so that somebody just did a play about these random international travelers who landed in remote Canada in this teeny town. And then, you know, there's nowhere for them to stay. And they were grounded. I think I was grounded during 9-11. I think we were grounded, you know, like a week or something like that. So they had to, you know, they lived with people from the town. Right. And it was all about these people from the town who... That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, basically had all these people come and, and kind of change, disrupt their lives. But in true Canadian fashion, obviously, the Canadians are a very hospitable lot of people. And well, and uh, as you know, <clears throat> that's that's kind of the greatest thing about what we do is travel. You know, you get to meet so many cultures and so many different people and experience so much more than staying at home your whole life. Right. And it makes your life so much richer because you can kind of gauge where you are based on the rest of the world, not to mention you get to learn so much and implement it in your own life because if you have, if we have our own little home narrow focus, you might miss how good or bad you have it, right? So if you never left Kamloops <laughs> and you follow, you know, let's, and I don't know, your parents probably travel, but let's say that you stayed in Kamloops and worked construction and, um, you know, never, didn't leave much, uh, you might not have the same experiences or seen or met as many different types of people. Yeah. Um, how is, how is, so tell me about that a little bit. How is travel and meeting people all over the world, doing adventures, staying in, in you know, in, in, the, in someone's home as a foreigner, um, how has that changed your perspective about one how we're different, but also maybe how we're how we're similar? Well, I think that it's easy for us to all get caught up in like you know a lot of people are insecure and they get caught up in their scene or their environment and they they need to be accepted in these so, certain groups and stuff and and like I mentioned earlier when I moved to Whistler when you when you move and now I've moved to Laguna when when you move to a new place or when you go to a new place. You know, it's kind of a blank canvas. When you, when you go in with a little star power or whatever, then it's pretty easy because people accept you. But when you're in a place that people wouldn't understand that or whatever, um, it really makes you become you because you can't lean on anything. You can't, right. you know, you're not the richest guy or the coolest guy. You're just you. Right. And so I think it <clears throat> it brings it makes you uh, really identify with who you are and who other people are and makes you a richer person because it's it's all you got. You don't, you know, you're, you're almost naked, you know. Right. And I think seeing different cultures and different uh uh pe- some people don't have it as good as we do here, you know, and it just kind of brings everything back to reality of like, okay, what's important in life, you know. Yeah, and, and it's funny, sometimes you notice like you're in a country where people don't have as much, right? But have you noticed that maybe some of those people seem happier yeah. or um, more well-adjusted. For sure. Almost like they know where they come from, they know what their story is. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like uh, we're, we're so caught up in the rat race of life that uh, when you go to a culture where everything's simplified, they don't, they don't worry about as much because there's nothing to worry about. You don't need right. a new car. You, you don't even have a car. Right, <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I think it's really nice to, like, uh, one that sticks out in my mind was Nepal. Yeah. The people seemed 
quite happy and pleasant and they were hardworking and struggling, one of the poorest countries in the world. And it just seemed like a, a very nice, nice so, vibe. Very kind-hearted people. Yeah. We, we were just in Sumba. You've been to Sumba, to mm-hmm. yeah. You've been to that resort. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, great place. And yeah. one of the things, you know, Glenn Rogers, good friend of, of ours, course. also a fellow Canadian okay. living in Laguna. Hey. Um, a fellow Canadian, a <laughs> likes his back bacon and his maple syrup, but uh, he uh, don't we all? But he, um, we were in Sumba, and he kept asking, "Why is everyone so happy here?" Because you know, you know what it's like. I mean, people are yeah. still very tribal. Um, sure, they actually occasionally will still hack each other to death. I mean, it's I that's the story. I, I didn't see it, but I heard it. <laughs> yeah, we heard about it. But 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 the thing you notice is that people are really cheerful and yeah. very you know welcoming and warm and all these wonderful traits. And the answer that we got multiple times from different different sources there was that the, you know part of the reason that people seem so well adjusted and so happy is they know who they are. Yeah. Meaning that they know they know for generations. I mean the the. Their ancestors are buried on their yeah, tribal lands. Um, they know what they're supposed to do. They know how you go and you know steal a wife from a neighboring tribe. Um, they know what you're supposed to do when you get up in the morning. They know what you know what makes things work. And um, I think I've noticed at least when I'm traveling that you see. So sometimes you meet people, and part of what you learn isn't just like you said. You're you feel naked. You're unmasked. Yeah. Um, but you also start to see that maybe they have something we don't have too that, yeah. that is good for us to learn from. Um, so, getting back to, and you know, a lot of people listen to this because they're trying to build a life, trying to create something for themselves. And you've obviously done that. You've not only taken something you love, a passion, but you've built a, uh, uh, an, you know, business around an income effectively. Um, and it's something that you're really good at. You're one of the best people in the world at it. That's kind of what. You know, Jim Collins and Good to Greater Built to Last would say that's your hedgehog concept, where those three things intersect. Yeah. Um, that's what you should focus your time on. Uh, you've had a lot of sponsors over the years. I mean, you've had some incredible vehicles, right? You had a yeah. big Mercedes truck at one point. Yeah, I had an AMG sponsorship. That was AMG. A pinch me. Is this really happening? Kind yeah. of thing, you know, it was great. Who, who, who have you had as sponsors? I mean, obviously, XS, one of your yeah. favorite sponsors, clearly. Of course. <laughs> keeps me hydrated. Yeah, it keeps you energized, hydrated, something. Um, but what are, tell me about some of your sponsors that, that you've, you know, that you've had over the years. And, um, and, and where is this going? What's, what's the next step for Richie Schley? Where's, where's it all headed? Well, I've had I've, I've been I've ridden for almost every eyewear company there is. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and I've had a few bike sponsors. Like some, some, you know, it's interesting because some of my sponsors have been de- a decade, and some have been only a year. Switch a year, switch a year, switch a year. Sure. Um, Especially when it's a lot of components and parts, right? Yeah, exactly. And currently, I'm sponsored by YT Bikes. It's a it's a brand out of Germany. The Germans seem to love me for some reason. I guess it's the last name, maybe. Schley. Yeah, Schley. S-C-H-L-E-Y, right? That's a German name. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, I think it's uh, because I'm an international guy, so I can pick from different things. And w- the one thing that's been fascinating for me about the sponsorships is that you switch sponsors, you switch sponsors, and they kind of come full circle, and you kind of just wonder why won't people just make a long-term commitment? Because right now, at, at my point in my career, I, I tell people, I go, I'm a lifer here. So right. you got me. I'm, I have a lot of information to give you. I can help your business in some ways, you know, technically or whatever with my, my background. And I wonder why people want to keep switching, you know, because it's kind of like, well, you got a good asset. 
it's not, we're not talking about millions of dollars here. So it, it's very fascinating. But uh, so right now I'm trying to lean to more, more toward lifestyle brands because I think it's kind of a new conversation to be a 49-year-old guy and be a sponsored athlete. Wait, you're 49? <laughs> I know. I was just checking, checking your, uh, your Tinder app profile and it says you're only 35. <laughs> <laughs> it's never been it's only ever been a 10 year lie. <laughs> so anyway, I, you know because actually like I this is hilarious. I I uh lost my eyewear sponsor because brands now go like we have a mandate within the corporation you can only sponsor from 18 to 27, no one older, right? Yeah. Ageism horrible thing. Yeah, ageism. Well, also, and it's, and I also think there's marketers who don't really understand what they're doing. Sure. And so they have these narrow guidelines that they create um, when they don't, when they kind of miss the whole story or the bigger picture, right? And yeah, of course. And so the guy that was running the company, it's a corporate mandate, so he can't, has no choice. So he right. tells me, there's this... Um, there's this online store in San Diego called Sport RX, and they make prescription uh, sportswear, sports eyewear. Right. And I had asked the the company, can you make me some riding glasses with readers in them? <laughs> <laughs> so like with a bifocal. Yeah. I've seen these. I noticed these the other night. And of course they kind of laughed and chuckled, but then I approached the store and they're like, you are the perfect story because you're faced with the problems that a lot of our customers are. Well, and, and by the way, there's a lot of athletes now. I mean, in, in for example, in triathlon competitions, some of the hardest age groups are our age group, mm -hmm. you know, over 40 and then over 50 even becomes more aggressive because people have the resources and the time. They don't have kids anymore right. and they can actually go do this stuff and become, you know, now with the technology, yeah. we can still compete at, at Exactly. Age. And it seems like we're able to do things longer because we all understand we need to fix our bodies, take care of ourselves, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, I'm trying to, you know, I just, I uh, just connected with a local uh, CBD oil guy Seven Point CBD, it's called. So that's this is a. I'm a big fan of CBD oil. Yeah. So this is out of the, the cannabis plant. Yeah. CBD is the non psychoactive component. So exactly. it's the part that gives you all the health benefits, the anti inflammation, yeah. um, kind of the anti anxiety benefits without getting high, without having the. Exactly. So it helps me sleep. Seems to ease the pain because at this point you have lots of aches and pains. Well, it and cuts inflammation, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm trying to, and then I got a uh, this uh, action camera company called Rilo. It's a new, um, newer camera. Like everybody thinks about the GoPro, but this one's a 360 cam, and it, it, they're very interested in me speaking to the audience because I can capture all the cool things I do with their cameras. So Plus, and, and this ties into social media, right? You're exactly. using social media. So you're telling stories on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and are you primarily using Instagram? Yeah. Um, sure. And you're, and you're, I mean, what's, what's your Instagram? It's just Richie Schley. Richie Schley, R-I-C-H-I-E and then S-C-H-L-E-Y. Exactly. Richie Schley on Instagram. And so, yeah, I, I'm trying to move in the direction more of lifestyle brands because I think they get it. They're like, okay, here's a category. There's a bunch of, like you said, affluent people. They're at their age in their life where they have more money. And they're still trying to be young and rad, whether they are or not, whatever. And they're, they're the guys buying stuff. So that's kind of the direction I'm trying to go. And I, I feel like uh, being an aspirational middle-aged guy is a valid category because we're all going to be faced with it. And so the, the, the problems and dilemmas are new and different, right? Right. So you're, and this is kind of interesting. So you're, you're almost creating a new category. 
It's Again. the right. No, well, because I mean, you think about it. When you know, when we were growing up, everybody stopped doing sports like mountain biking or yeah. surfing when they got older and grew up. And it turns out now that nobody nobody wants to grow up anymore, which I think <laughs> yeah, is pretty fantastic. Crazy, eh? Yeah. How about why, you? Why would you? I'm never growing up. Um, I'm the 13 year old in the house. You can ask Sarah. I mean, we call Sarah, my wife, our the camp director here at Vanderhalla. <laughs> um, I'm occasionally a camp counselor, also also a camper quite often. With their boys, it. yeah, but yeah, but I think you know the idea, and, and Sarah's obviously wonderful and has a lot of fun too. Um, she does more adulting than I do, but she, uh, she, but you know, but the idea is that um, if we can keep our bodies fit and and put together, so sometimes we have yeah. to tune some stuff up now, but if we can keep our bodies fit and put together, not only do we can we still do these things that people used to give up as they got older and fatter. Um, but we, we stay healthier, yeah. we're more passionate, we're more engaged in the world, and totally. I think we have more energy. I certainly yeah. do. I mean, I think, uh, I, I tell my friends all the time, you got to move, you got to do stuff, you got to be fit, you know? Right. And at this age, it's it's much easier to stay in shape than to get out of shape, get back into shape. Get, you know, you see the whole... Yo-yoing's awful. Yeah, yeah, you see our society fighting their weight battle and stuff, but if you just have a routine and you try to find the, the activities you like and you make it part of your weekly, daily life, then you don't even realize you're exercising because you're enjoying yourself. Because you're having so much fun. Yeah. You're like, you don't, I mean, you ride a lot, but you're out on trails. I don't go to the gym. Right. Never have. If I have a serious injury and I have to rehab, I go to the gym. But otherwise, I try to find sports that uh, benefit that my sport. Cross but training. for the most part, it's just I do stuff I love to do. Sure. And do you, um, how have you modified your diet over the years? I know that you... Uh, I mean, I, I know some things about you, but tell me about what do you eat every day? Like, what do you have for breakfast? What do you have for lunch? What do you have for dinner? What do you drink? Um, how do you party differently? Um, you don't have to get into all the details there, but you know, do you? <laughs> but, um, uh, but, one woman at a time. <laughs> but how does, I mean, help people who, let's say that you were out of shape and you wanted to get back into shape, you know, 80% of your, how you transform your body is what you put in your mouth. Yeah. It's 70 or 80%. The other 20, 30% is how much you work. I mean, you probably, probably affect more of your body by the amount of exercise you do, but it still comes down to a lot of what you put in your mouth, correct or not? Yeah. Well, I, I don't, um, I, I've, I've discovered that gluten doesn't work very well for me. So I, I cut that out and that's based on trial and error. That's not, uh, like it's what makes you feel good. Right? I'm not trying to be skinny. Like right. a lot of my friends are like, Oh, you're afraid you're going to get fat. And I'm like, no, I feel like crap when I eat it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I try to eat three meals and I, I'm not a big snacker. Like I have a lot of friends that if there's food out, they just eat it. And yeah. I'm like, well, you're not hungry. Why are you eating? So I don't, Great I don't question. snack a lot. And, um, you know, I try to eat real food, not packaged foods. I try to So you're making things at home or yeah, going exactly. out. Yeah, exactly. Or even if I go out for dinner, I try to, I try to eat like, good stuff. I go to restaurants I know use good, good ingredients and stuff like that. We were at Rumari the other night. What yeah. did you order at Rumari? You ordered the fish, right? I had a risotto de mare because it's gluten-free oh, that's right. and risotto it's fish. And, but I, I mean, I'm not perfect. I, I love French fries and I love uh, tortilla chips. I mean, when you live here, how do you not eat fresh tortilla chips? They're insane. Right. But I, I And I also, I'm a bit of a big eater, but if I know that I, like if I'm injured or something and I know I'm not doing the same output, I cut back, right? So right. I, I just try to, I look at food like fuel. Like I, I know I'm going to do something, I need to fill the tank up. And if I'm not doing anything, then I really don't sure. gorge and eat a ton of food, right? Which uh, which which excess, and you stopped drinking beer, I noticed. You, you yeah, shifted out I mean, of beer. I, I kind of researched which 
beers have the least gluten in it. So I'll have a beer here or there because often someone offers you a beer, they don't have an alternative. So if it's the right one, I'll have it. But uh, like actually last week, we went to this new restaurant in town and I ate pizza and everything non-gluten and I had a couple beers and I, I was destroyed for a whole day. I was like, oh, I think I'm going to die. Oh, wow. So and, and every once in a while, I got to kind of try it to see if, well, is it just in my head? And turns out it's not. It's it's real. You really it notice it. My body. So I think people got to... If some if you got an upset stomach or a headache or whatever, you got to go like retrace your steps and go, what did that, and then kind of eliminate it. So like for example, with excess, I I eat the products that are gluten free. Like our protein bars are all gluten free. Protein bars I eat. The other ones I'm not sure. The, the ones that are yeah more of a it's, yeah. yeah the energized bars have exactly, little exactly so. so they have some some gluten in them. Um, do you use the protein powders or the uh, muscle multiplier? I use the muscle multiplier. I like that because it's light. Yeah. But the protein powder, it's like any, like I don't, I'm not a big smoothie guy because I feel like I drink a smoothie, I don't feel full. So then I want to eat a meal. So then I'm but getting you just took way in a bunch too many of calories. calories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just eat a meal or do, or if I'm in an emergency situation, I'll eat a protein powder. Like I got to run out the door and I haven't had anything. But uh, the muscle multiplier, I like it because it doesn't fill me up. Right. So I, I, I but I feel like uh, doing smoothies is a great idea if you can really do it as a meal supplement. Right. But I don't get full. So I drink a smoothie, then I'm like, okay, now I need breakfast. Right. right, right. <laughs> it's nice on bad thing. That's good with breakfast. No, I, I think for a lot of our um, people who use it for our business, it's, you know, the smoothies are more like on the go yeah, meal replacement. Sure. Um, or it's like right after a workout and someone's, yeah. you know, had an aggressive workout and they're trying to, to build up their lean muscle mass. But um, I will say when I did that Baja crossing, yeah. uh, the other riders are always more fit than me, the two other guys that did it. And um, they both had six weeks to train. <clears throat> and like I said, starting out more fit than me. And I've, I decided to go on the trip with only three weeks to go. Yeah. And I used all the excess products and I did the pre-ride mixes and the, the protein powders after. And I swear I was blown away by how quickly I got strong and fit. I, I, it was a test for sure. It works. Yeah. Thank you. No, the, um, I, I've noticed, I mean, I'm older. I, I'm a little skeptical about products. We see a lot of stuff. One of the things I noticed with our whey proteins was I'm just a lot less sore if I'm consuming yeah. it within 30 minutes of a, oh, of a hard okay. workout. I'm going to have to remember that. And try that, yeah. Let's see if it works for you. Everybody's everybody's a little different. Um, and I'm not here pitching our products, so, I, I mean, it's fun to talk about, but I really, um, you know, whether or not people buy them is, is up to them. That's I'm not here selling those. Do you, um, as you travel around the world and, and you've, you've run into different people, there's a lot of different belief structures. One of the things I like to ask people is, what do you think about just, there's no right or wrong answer here, but what do you think about the, uh, the universe? Like, where do we come from? Where are we going? What's, what does this, what does this all leave us? Have you thought about that at all? Of course I think about it a little bit, but I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a pretty simple guy. <laughs> so I, uh, I kind of believe that we're, you know, we got our time here We're like the plants or the animals we were, we're born and then we die and what happens after I don't give it a ton of thought. So, um, but there, you know, I have, I have, uh, uh, explored the quantum physics and watched some movies and read some stuff and it's all quite interesting, but I'm, I'm a real, uh, present person. So I'm kind of like, my thought process is very, uh, right here and right now. I don't, I don't plan a lot. I've never planned a lot. I think insurance is a scam, but of course I'm scared that I might 
lose my house, so I buy it. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just such a present person that I don't, I don't invest a ton of thought into it. Sure. So I mean, which is healthy too. I mean, I think a lot of people spend so much time thinking about you know this thing that we don't even know about the hereafter or whatever you want to call it that. Um, you know, they forget to be present here now and they forget to actually maybe bring a little heaven to earth in yeah. every moment of the day, True. right? True. And if, if one person, well, I know a lot of people that have, I think, pretty good lives, but you're one of the people that I think every day lives the life that people would give their lives to live. And, uh, and you've been very fortunate to be able to do that. And, and not just fortunate, but you've worked really hard to make that life happen. If you could change anything, uh, one of the questions Jim Collins asks, if you had $200 million, so money doesn't matter, but you only had five years left to live, what would you do tomorrow? Would it be different than what you're going to do tomorrow anyways? Hmm. How much money? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, his his point isn't about the amount. It's just if, you know, let's say that money doesn't really matter, so you can kind of do whatever you want, but time's running out. Would you do, would you change anything about your life? Would you, would you live it differently than you're living it right now? No, definitely not. Because um, <clears throat> I, I think the only, like, my biggest stress in life is my income. Because I I like my life and I want to enjoy it. And, and um, you've done reasonably well. I mean, you've owned condos in Whistler. You've got a home yeah. that you own here in Laguna Beach, which is no small thing. Yeah. Um, and you've set that up wisely so you can rent part of it out and live yeah. in right, different houses and stuff. It's multiple homes on one lot. Um yeah, so so finish that thought. Sorry. Well, I mean, I, I was quite fortunate. My my career didn't provide me with a ton of money, but I was in Whistler when the um, when the real estate boom happened, and I had friends that were very supportive and clever, and so I bought and sold real estate, and those were the things that got me the most success in my life, I guess. But obviously, the sponsorship money had to pay those first uh, sure. down payments and stuff. But no, to be honest, I mean, I might. I might uh, help out more, help people out more if I had an abundance of money, for sure. But as far as my day-to-day life goes, I mean, I don't know, I might buy, I might not look at the prices of food as much or anything like that. I might (laughs) eat out a little more, but I actually eat out quite a bit. I was going to say, how can you eat out more? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't know what you're doing today, but you you eat out quite a bit, don't you? I, I wouldn't change much. Yeah. I always say if I was very wealthy, I would live in a hotel and have a driver because I'm a, I'm a stress case on the road. I, I don't like other drivers, so I'd love to just sit back and enjoy that. And I don't like cleaning up after myself. So <laughs> <laughs> so those are the two things. I, I'd live in a penthouse in a hotel. But no, my, my life is great. I, I, it's simple, but I love it. So I, I, I don't think I would do too much. I might, I might buy things a little more loosely without having to scratch my head and goes, it's a good decision. But otherwise, no, nah, it's, it's a good life. Well, it sounds like you've, uh, you've figured it out. You've put together a <laughs> life that uh, gives you what you want. And um, I think we all have to make decisions. I mean, you know, the economic component's always fixed no matter how yeah. much you have. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, it seems like you've figured it out. And uh, you, you. you seem to seem to be doing well. And you're a great representative for Excess and Excess Nation. So I wanted to thank Thank you for coming on today. And thank you for uh, sharing your life with all of us. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This has been Richie Schley. Follow him on Instagram at uh, richieschley.com, R-I-C-H-I-E-S-C-H-L-E-Y, not .com, but Richie Schley on Instagram. And um, I'm Dave Vanderveen, and hope you've enjoyed this. Whatever you do this week, please be kick aspirational.